0: Um, and, and I think that's a that's a large mistake on our part. I, don't, I think we're doing some of it. Um, I'm sure we are backdoors that you and I don't know about. Um, but, I, you know, I think that... Oh, means- you
1: must know about him. You know everything.
0: <laughs> that needs to be
1: stumped <laughs> up. No, I wish I did know everything. <laughs> I'm so disillusioned. This interview is over. <laughs> no. no, no, no. <laughs> um, <laughs> welcome. At the Political Party Pooper Playbook. And if you thought all we did was sit around thinking of ways to poop on empty-suit politicians, well, you'd be half right. On St. Patrick's Day, I sat down with Patricia Janeiro, professor, P- Patricia Janeiro. Uh, also the host of PatriciaDiGennaro.com, She's been on Fox, CNN, MSNBC, Al Jazeera, BBC as a subject matter expert. She is a visiting scholar at George Mason University. She's senior fellow at the World Policy Institute. She's an adjunct professor at New York University, and she's been teaching 15 years foreign policy issues. Uh, She also has a degree in business. Um, She just got back from Brussels, when we sat down to talk, where she was discussing the Balkans. Remember those guys? Those, that's, a, that's a word we haven't heard in the news for a long time. I have opinions on where the Balkans could go, but I will keep my powder dry and let Patricia speak on that issue. Sometimes it's best to keep your mouth shut and not stir up actual shit, so I'm not going to do that. But that is where the Balkans are located, where a lot of the cracks and the fissures are um, in Eastern Europe. But we didn't just discuss that. As a matter of fact, that we only touched on that lightly. We talked about Ukraine, China, um, NATO, the European economy, the EU. We talked about U.S. military power, U.S. diplomatic power, and and we talked about Uh, the condition of uh, our intelligence uh, in the United States as well as our uh, diplomatic reach in the world. Okay, this is an indication that the P4B is no longer the dinky little podcast it was just a short time ago. We're getting high caliber guests discussing important international issues. Things that I've always discussed, but I come at it from the standpoint of uh, spotting patterns that I've been I've been good at I've done it over the years and and oftentimes I'll see things coming uh, before they happen but it's seat of the pants and when I do something on on a podcast it's usually something that I'm interested in I'm just expressing my interest in a subject and sharing it with you but now we're starting to get into these are the issues of the day, and these are the people who know about it, and Patricia is definitely an example of that. And she creates a new perspective. If you were to take a line and put, say, Peter Zahan right in the center, that's, he, he's one of my new heroes, but I very rarely hear him express a, a political thought. Put him right at the zero point, right in the middle, and to your left, just a little bit, would be Patricia DiGennaro. She she comes with her perspective that isn't—it's not wild-eyed left-wing, but it, it it's it's a, a perspective that's not conservative. And I would be on that line, like somewhere in the next room. <laughs> but it's good to get that perspective. And what I found encouraging is the same things I say, the same things Peter Zahan says, Patricia's saying, and the same things that we caution people, you need to think about these things. People with the receipts, people with the goods, who know what they're talking about, with the credentials, are saying these things. So I was really encouraged to have on. I really enjoyed having her on. It was a great um, great hour, as it turned out. It it vanished like that. I could have kept her on for five hours. if if, if I thought she'd have sat through that, I'd have done so. Um, and I don't I don't compare myself to the likes of Patricia de or Peter Zahan. I understand my limitations. So welcome to the P4B. Uh, today we have a guest I've been looking forward to for a very long time. Uh, it's a huge get for a brand new podcast. So, uh, just having Patricia here is, uh, a real thrill for me. Uh, I kind of characterize it as a half a can of warm bud doing an interview with a fresh bottle of Johnny Walker blue label. Um, Patricia, uh, has a background, a resume, as long as your arm. I don't want to get into it because I have like seven and a half hours of questions to get through for (laughs) Patricia, but
0: Uh,
1: the the long and short of it is uh, uh, Patricia has worked with CENTCOM, JSOC, um, U.S. Army training. Um, She's an adjunct professor at New York University, um, a visiting fellow at the World Policy Institute, which is actually the important qualification that I wanted to speak to her about today. And, um, a visiting scholar at George Mason university on, uh, conflict resolution analysis, or, excuse me, conflict analysis and resolution. Um, and that's the short version. <laughs> I said it, I said, in one of the promos, your resume reads like three professors and five advisors, and it's just you.
0: <laughs> That's sweet. Thank you very much. You're too kind.
1: But uh, you and I, we have walked in some of the same communities. I used to be uh, with Joint Personnel Recovery. Uh, a lot of people in and out of there were JSOC and and CENTCOM. Uh, and we also obviously interfaced with all the militaries uh, yeah. on a Joint Forces level. I was I was joint forces before joint forces was cool. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that that'll that'll date you. That'll that'll show you how old I am. Um, it's always cool. So yeah, what brought you to this line of work?
0: Oh my god! I think it, you know it. It was really my desire to find out um, about the world, and not only about the world, about what the U.S was doing in the world. I was always fascinated by other cultures, other you know things that were going on. And I, I really started getting attracted to US foreign policy. And um, I was fortunate enough to study abroad for a while and learned much more, I think, than most people want to learn about U.S. interventions and foreign policy. (laughs) And so I just, you know, I wanted more and more and more. And, I, you know, I think having been a Peace Corps volunteer was a big imprint in my life to see what was happening as far as development and the power of the U.S. in in their interventions in, in the rest of the world. So... I think that's really what brought me here.
1: You're going to you're going to see it and you're going to understand it better than most of us, but you're going to see that change now, right? That dynamic, the US stomping across the world like the jolly green giant.
0: Well, I don't know, they're still stomping pretty far. I mean, we, you know, we have a presence in over 190 com- some countries right now, 100 and I guess it's 30 something like that. And um I mean the the only place we've withdrawn from is now is Afghanistan and um I I don't think that our influence there is over. I think it's just on pause for a little while. Um mm-hmm. you know, and I think like a lot of people, I just never realized the impact of, of U.S. foreign policy, how powerful this nation was and some of the responsibility it has. And I always felt that we could use our responsibility and our power in a much better way than we do. So mm-hmm. that really drew me to to this type of career.
1: OK, well, I'm going to be um, actually asking very specific questions about Afghanistan in a little bit. But I want to start with the 700-pound elephant in the room that you're probably tired of speaking about by now, and that would be Ukraine. Right. Um, I'm trying to get used to these new glasses, so bear with me. Uh, there's so much we hear um, coming out of the, the Ukraine conflict. Um, It's hard to tell uh, what is propaganda versus what is the real deal. Putin's capabilities, Ukraine's ability to hang on. We get a lot of body count on the news about the Russians. Oh, they've lost so many thousands in a year, and obviously that is a serious thing, and it demonstrates a serious weakness that Mm -hmm. people didn't see at the beginning. But how long can Ukraine hold on? What what kind of numbers are they absorbing right now?
0: Yeah, I think that's the million dollar question, right? They're also absorbing very high numbers of casualties. And, and wounded. Um, I think Russia underestimated the will of the people to pick up and fight against that invasion and I I think that we all a bit underestimated Russia was going to do that um, at that extent. but at the same time, I think we thought the ground forces were much more powerful than we we're seeing. And I, I'm not sure that they're not. I think Russia is holding back on some of its military prowess and capabilities for a lot of reasons. One, because basically all of you know our our Western and, and European allies have really band together and said, you know, we're we're going to help Ukraine the best way we can. Mm-hmm. So I think they're hedging a little bit. How much more? Um, really, military power they want to use and what types. Now, what concerns me, and I think you're right. There's a lot of rhetoric and there's a lot of propaganda, and you know, in this media, you know, social media environment that we have, we're always hearing news that isn't true, and people are are quite good at using new are using narratives and stories to influence others' thoughts and behaviors. And, you know, we see that happening in this country, and I I think we see it happening with this particular conflict. But I, you know, I I think what concerns me right now is we've heard that, um, you know, Poland and others may be sending in some MiGs now, which means that the Ukraine will not have the air power that the United States would not provide to them. And um, that. You know, an air fight is gonna is gonna cause a whole different type of of casualty. It's going to cause definitely an increased, uh, you know, the battle is is going to you know be upped and increased there, and and I think
1: you know I'm it's not. A, it's a whole new level of kinetic at this point, right?
0: That's correct, and and I don't think we're we're quite ready for for the results and the effects of of that. Because it can then start expanding out of those borders, which I, I, I'm not—I'm sure that that Russia is thinking about um, already. But you know, are we capable and are we ready? And is NATO ready to to really look at something like that? or, or counter, mm-hmm. you know, a greater reach if you're starting well, to bring in air power.
1: Assuming, I wonder if if you if we could if we could war game this just a little bit. Um, assuming a, uh, a Ukraine victory or even a draw, what does that do? What kind of dynamic comes into play for Europe now and NATO?
0: Well, I mean, you know, I don't think this was, you know, Vladimir Putin's, um, you know, plan overall, but unfortunately what he did was reinvigorate NATO and now people are really, um, they're they're committed to increasing the security umbrella of NATO. They're committed to making it stronger. They're committed to making it more responsive. Um, you know, a new strategy was recently set out in Spain um, this last summer, and that's of resistance and resilience. And I think that 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 can really cause a greater conflict and challenge between you know who's going to be the stronger who's going to stand longer, so what's important here is really diplomacy, right, so we need really our diplomatic decision makers and our diplomatic actors to go into overdrive because nobody wants to see another this is this is this is tenuous or semi almost a world War three dynamic that you're seeing here, even though you know, it's Russia against, against Ukraine, but it's the U.S. and Western partners supporting the Ukraine against Russia. And then you have China and Iran and other players and Israel as well, it, you know, it, in interfering in kind of the dynamics that are going on already. So you, you have quite, quite a, a, a possibility of an all out, you know, third world war if, if we are not careful. And, nice. I, you know, we're dismissing diplomacy. Um, and, and I think that's a that's a large mistake on our part. I, don't, I think we're doing some of it. Um, I'm sure we are back doors that you and I don't know about. Um, but, I, you know, I think that... Oh, means- you
1: must know about him. You know everything. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that you to be stepped up. No, I wish I did know everything. <laughs> I'm
1: so disillusioned. This interview is over. <laughs> no, no, no. no. <laughs> um, well, you're just Actually, back from Russell, right? they don't
0: listen to me enough. That's the problem.
1: <laughs> well, there you go. I have a restless entrepreneurial spirit. Over the years, I've had lots of side hustles I used to bulk up my income. I drove rideshare, delivered food, worked as a courier, investigated auto accidents for insurance companies. I even sold satellite dishes when they were offering 20 channels and required a degree in engineering to operate. What I liked about all those gigs was I worked when I wanted to. Sometimes I had three going at a time. I wish I had happened across this kind of a thing back then. I'd have saved thousands of miles on my vehicle and had a far easier go of it. Social sale rep is a gig worker's dream. Companies are turning more and more to this type of arrangement to maintain their online presence and churn dollars and it offers a degree of anonymity to the tech assist or the salesperson who's actually doing the work and the hiring signs are out everywhere so if you can type and be nice to people scroll down through the transcript and click on the pick. There you go, <laughs> you're just back from Brussels, right? yeah, I am was that a NATO function or
0: well i I am um looking at at the Balkans right now and the fissure points that are happening there, the constant you know crevices that have happened throughout you know history um how prevalent uh, are we to go back or is there to be another um conflict or a rise you know, uh, again, another ethnic war going on there. So um, I talked to, I went out and talked to basically our NATO counterparts about their concerns in the Balkans and how we can kind of support them from a research standpoint and look at a more strategic vision of the importance of the Balkans so we don't end up with another Bosnia, Serbia, Kosovo, you know, right, right. in the middle of what's happening in
1: Ukraine right now. That's that's one of those backwater problems. When you have all this loud noise going on in the media, you forget about things like that. I don't know if you caught my previous post. I believe it was the one where I did our first promo for this one. Um, And it's not the first time I've said it, but with the end of the Balkan Wars, with the breakup of East Germany, the borders are a little different, and mm. the players have switched sides a little bit. But we have recreated pre World War One Europe. The when you hear people talk, the 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 scary part if you if you look back to, I'll I'll have to find the author and I'll send it to you. The uh the most recent book I read about the Battle of the Somme, mm. and in in his lead up, uh, he said that what was significant after say 1905 1906 where the people were having the discussion are we going to go to war it was actually the the common man was developing his prejudices and his angers and his allegiances in his own heart for what was going Mm -hmm. on around us and that's what we're now hearing on the news and you hear people talking on the street day to day oh we're for ukraine or oh we're not worried about ukraine it's it's developing a dynamic of its own now.
0: Well, I think Eastern Europe and the Balkans, you know, they have long memories. Um, the history is almost yesterday. Uh, right. I think some of our, um, some of the challenges that we didn't take at that time during during the Dayton Accords and at post-93 after the fall of the Berlin Wall when when the conflict was going on and we were trying to stop it. You know, we have this tendency to try to, to put different groups in different spaces and cordon them off. And I think that that's can only be appropriate for a certain amount of time. It's kind of like your kindergartners, when they start fighting, you put one in each corner, but eventually they're going to have to come back and deal with each other at a later time. And so we what happened was we put you know the Croats in one place the bosnians in in one place, the Serbs in one place, the Kosovars in another place and 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 they're still having to deal with the animosities that they've had for for decades i mean thousands wow. of years even but you can go back to the Turkish Empire and it's just it's those little things that have never been resolved or th- or moved beyond or found a way to move beyond.
1: Yeah. Part of that and you, was- you mentioned that. You mentioned that in one of your articles about after the Cold War, a lot of the hegemony of the two superpowers was reduced. Mm-hmm. And all these places where we exercised heavy influence and pressures, these people now had, I think, in your words, permission or, or freedom to uh, to move in their own direction. For right. well, their own purposes.
0: Right. I mean, it was kind of like, you know, the U.S. And, and the USSR at that time. And here's my age, you know, the Soviet Union, right? <laughs> you know, they yeah. had their feet on each part of the globe. Um, you either were not communist or you were. And I, I think a lot of people felt marginalized. A lot of people, you know, felt like their li- their lives histories had been put on hold. And so once those feet came up, yeah, they, they decided they were going to go back and make good for what happened in history. You know, I lived in Albania for four years and it was really interesting to me to see that the memories of who had done them wrong went back decades. And they were, you, a back. <laughs> they were ready yeah. to go back in battle for who killed their uncles, brothers, sisters, cousins, you know, long lost friend 40, 50, 60, 70 years ago. And, you know, I, you know, I thought the Middle East was bad. No, this is like, they have memories that go beyond anything I've seen. They've (laughs)
1: redefined the word vendetta. Yes, they
0: have. And I'm an Italian, so I should kind of get that, but I
1: don't know. What would you say, uh, Mm -hmm. keeping everything we just said as prologue? I don't know if Putin can accept defeat. Or even a legitimate draw.
0: I'm not sure he can accept defeat either. So, I mean, that's a really big challenge, right, for the West. How do you give someone of his stature and, dare I say, large ego, um, (laughs) some space to save face? And, you know, I'm not sure that that's going to happen because they want him to give up every ounce of territory, including Crimea and everything that he's already you know, taken and those those are the predetermined terms already. And I, I'm not sure that's gonna happen. I think what needs to happen is either um Russia is going to have to be assured that NATO stops getting closer and closer to its near abroad, which is, you know, was the concern for Putin in the first place. Right. And you know, so he it, it, it's a, it's a very difficult dynamic, and you know this goes back to I think we can use our power in better ways. You know, we're, we we the first thing we did after the nineties was expand NATO, right? Even though we agreed with the Russians to to stop the expansion of NATO within the Eastern European terms, but no, we went further. You know, we went further to try to include Georgia, include Ukraine, include you know, some other and, you know, other uh, states in the region. And so I think I think he got very scared. And as a leader and as a decision maker, I always have to try to understand the response of the other party based on the decisions I make. And I just don't think American policymakers do that very well.
1: No, <laughs> we're not famous for it. No. But um, <laughs> you said earlier... Oh, i just jumped track um we were talking about nato right. russian victory but uh if if i remember it i'll come back to it so assuming a russian victory what what could come of that in terms of the dynamic in Europe?
0: I, you know, I don't see any victory here. I think both parties are going to probably fight till the end. That's the way I see it here. And if we keep, you know, if other states and other parties keep arming each other, which is happening right now, they're going to have to continue to have munitions to fight. And, right. you know, I just don't see a good outcome coming from that at right. all. Um, so I, I, again, I have to, I think that a responsible policymaker and a responsible decisions maker, decision makers really need to figure out a way where we can kind of go back to a, a dente, so to speak, you know, where mm-hmm.
1: we, yeah, yeah.
0: we just stop this because other, otherwise, you know, I mean, what you know, it's, it's Cuban Missile Crisis. This this is like guaranteed mutual destruction. We, Only bigger. Yeah. I, I mean, <laughs> Russia may be showing some weakness in its ground war with Ukraine, but it certainly has weapons that are capable of doing much more damage you know at a broader at that's a broader
1: that's geography. the point i was trying to remember you uh, said you don't know if they fully unloaded yet no and i've i've always felt that way i i thought if russia made a committed effort they would walk across ukraine as a matter of fact i said that in the lead up putin was so gradual building up the forces on the border, it was like he would take a step and watch and get away with it. Take another step and watch. And he would bring these forces together and by the time he brought the hospitals up, which is the last thing you do before Jump Street, I think he was actually shaking his head thinking, I think I'm going to get away with this. Mm -hmm. I think I'm going to be able to do this. I'm i'm not sure when he started he was confident until he got to where he was at and we were still shaking our finger at him
0: yeah well i think he i think he was a little more confident probably than he should have been i think again he has to, uh, underestimated the ukrainian will to fight against yeah, him and to organize definitely. um you know I think we, as Americans, we've done our share of invasions of other countries, and we know that um, it doesn't always go as as planned. It's not always the cakewalk. More, you know, the Iraq first Iraq war seemed to be a bit of a cakewalk because everybody put up their hands, you know, and said, "Right, I don't have any food. I'm tired. Take me." You know, but the second war, the second Iraqi war, was was a big difference. We also found ourselves, you know, we have one of the most powerful militaries in the world, and you know, look what happened in Afghanistan. We we saw similar things in history in Vietnam, and and I mean, you know, you can just go on. and it, a War is not pretty, and it's not easy, and you never, you can't underestimate someone's passion and will. And, you know, uh, McRaven and General Odierno and a lot of generals have written on that in the past several years mm-hmm. and and really about what is the will of the people and the leaders to just continue. And it's really hard to say, you know, did yeah. you think the Taliban was going to fight for 25 years I and mean, 20 plus years?
1: <laughs> yeah. I mean, initially we were told we're going to Afghanistan to whack Al Qaeda mm-hmm. and then we're coming mm-hmm. home. Show's over. And then we didn't do that.
0: Well, we um, did do that. But the, the the misstep was show wasn't over. We didn't go home. We kept going, right?
1: That's what I'm saying, right? right. We, we decided right. now we're going to occupy and we're going right. to nation build and we're going to take these people yeah. who could care less what we think right. and we're going to try to teach them something and we're going to try to rebuild their country for them.
0: Yeah. Meanwhile, they were running circles around us, you know?
1: <laughs> well, I'm sorry. What was that? I
0: said, meanwhile, they were running circles around us.
1: Correct. Correct. Because they were fighting an insurgency.
0: Correct.
1: Leviathans can't fight insurgencies. They're not built for it. We never were. That's right. Um, We went from Korea until now. We're 120,000 plus deaths. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And in every case, we left the place pretty much how we found it. And I find that infuriating. I don't mean... We we did, we broke all the eggs, but then we walked away with a with a quid pro. anti. everything was the way it was politically, so we accomplished nothing after breaking all the eggs. Right,
0: and I, you know, I think that's a, that's what unfortunately got me interested in American foreign policy. Right, why are we doing these things? Why and what's the end game or the mission? And you know, we constantly lose sight of the mission. Um, from the beginning to the end. And I think, unfortunately, what happens is it becomes political, right? So you have then parties not wanting to do the best for American interests in the mission. You have them fighting internally. You know, mm-hmm. oh, I think we should get out. I think we should stay in. I think, you know, so there's not any logical or critical thinking. There's not really, you know, a rational. Discussion. There's not a pro or con. There's no red teaming or gaming, you know?
1: So yeah, it's. We have oh, the, the, I the want get out people.
0: Right.
1: Yeah. The get out people want to get out, but they don't want to be seen as losing.
0: Correct.
1: The stay in people want to stay in, mm-hmm. but they don't want to commit to mm-hmm. defeating the enemy. That's your job. Right. When, if you're going to go to war, yeah. you have to break all the eggs, take Everything. And if you're not willing to do that, you shouldn't go in. A, you shouldn't be going in the first place. Yeah. We wouldn't have this 22 year debate that we had over Afghanistan. Right. If, if we had simply stuck to our initial plan. Or if we said, oh, we got to defeat the Taliban, too. Well, then you have to own all of Afghanistan. You can't have. Right. One hundred and fifty thousand guys and say, well, we're going to fight a war now. It doesn't work that way. Right. I don't know it. But I, you I,
0: know, like, I really, I really think that our our leadership and our politicians really have to separate a lot of this stuff from politics. You know, this is not a vanity game. This is not a you know, and they they make it one. This is not a popularity game. This is actually things that affect our national interests, our domestic interests as well. You know, if we're having you know rhetoric back and forth and 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 you know insulting china every day that that's a major economic power that we do business with and it's a huge impact and you know being 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 tough and being deter- you know determined about what you how you stand as a nation is one thing but being irresponsible by insulting leaders for no obvious reason is is yeah, really being boisterous. Counter- yeah, it's yeah. counterproductive to the best things for the United States.
1: Right, right. I'm all fine with working in our interests 100% of the time. Yeah. And we have there's to a smart way to ready. do it, and there's a dumb way to do it. Right. And right. what and most politicians different. lack is the ability to understand the potential ripple effect. Correct. The unintended consequences of the stupid thing you just said. Right. You know, they don't get it. Right. I mean, look at Lindsey Graham. Yeah. I don't think I don't think there's been... An incident where he didn't want to send troops in to to deal with it, you know. Yeah. Uh, he's frightening, uh, right. and I'm I'm basically conservative. I guess you could say I'm part of his party, but <laughs> I don't know about that guy.
0: Well, I, you um, know, I think at this point, I, I I can't really say that any of them have been really responsible. It's uh, you know on both sides of the party they you, they really haven't. Because if if you're not if you're not deciding what's best for the country first and what's best for, you know, our
1: institutions
0: and how they need to 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 band together and survive, you know, I think there's a problem on both sides.
1: Right. Okay. I agree 100 percent. There is a weight loss product that's doing a roaring business right now. It seems like a no-brainer. It's called alpaline. It does its thing by improving your metabolism. I'm not a, a doctor, so I'll leave this particulars to them. But they are well uh, documented. Uh, so you won't get a supplement that says, take our stuff and do 500 sit-ups a day and get results. Uh, it comes with an ironclad 100% money-back guarantee. So it's easy to try. Click the link in the text to see if you qualify for two bonuses, uh, two books. One is, one is called One Day Detox Quick Start, and the other is Renew You. Both are geared around creating a new, healthier, and less stressful life for you. It's called Alpaline. Um, you did mention China mm-hmm. um, I have been uh reading and listening to Peter Zehan. you familiar with Peter? Mm-hmm. He's a international what do they call it, strategic analyst, I guess he calls himself. Mm-hmm. The way he describes it is you pull a string on one side of the world. it's his job to tell you what happens on the other side, and
0: yeah, that's a lot of what I do. <laughs>
1: Yeah, and, and that's why I was crazy happy to have you on because I was just starting to read Peter when I came across your stuff, and I said, "Oh, I have to talk to this lady." I mean, I was I was really happy when he came on. Thank you. But he talks at length about um, about China. L- let me do this before we go to China. There's something I do want to ask you about because it was uh, along the uh, the lines of what we what we've been talking about, and that is Afghanistan itself. Mm-hmm. 20 years. Everybody knows how I feel about that effort and and, and what came out of it. There's two things I, w- I want to ask you about. Mm-hmm. One is uh, uh, your after-action take of the withdrawal. How did you see that? And if you were advising the president, what would you have told him to do?
0: Well... I, I, I was not opposed to the withdrawal, okay, but um, I don't think that that the full um, story about what was happening in country was getting to decision makers. And by that, I mean that the Afghan military itself was was very weak. Um, we were having problems resourcing it. Uh, we were, our hands were tied in a lot of ways because of decisions that were made between the US government and the Ghani government. And that that was particularly, um, you know, during the negotiations with, during the Trump administration that happened in Doha. I mean, those those negotiations were, were really, um, they, they were not fruitful because Ghani was in no way, shape or form told that he needed to figure this out he right till the last moment he his understanding was president biden was going to come in and support him all over again no matter what trump president trump was deciding on the withdrawal and the negotiations with the taliban so everyone in ghani's kind of circle and including some u.s military i think really felt that biden was coming back into office and we were going back to war full full force
1: Really?
0: Yes, yes. And unfortunately, that did not happen. Right? So you you have the Biden administration. If you look back at Joe Biden's record, he was very adamant about getting out, out of Afghanistan for years. And so he was going to get out. And I think that based on a lot of things that were going on there at the time, which I can't really get into specifically, right. that he, he felt we needed to get out.
1: Do now, you think he was well served in terms of the plan on how to execute that? Because well, there are very me, few people who would
0: let me let me answer that kind of quickly. And I think this is a really important point. When you talked about the withdrawal, we had withdrawn, okay, to a certain amount of US troops, suited troops from Afghanistan. So most of the the military, active military duty were gone and that was true because I was there during the withdrawal so that was true where I was on Bagram and um, what was not true or what did not happen was you had 200,000 plus contractors that were still there they were not withdrawn they were still in place because mm-hmm. I think of this perception in the Ghani administration and also in I think the military upper echelon that once Joe Biden got in office, we were going to go back to war, full scale. Everybody was going to go back in. Everything was going to get built back up. And we were going to start the fight all over again, what, a 10th, 13th time, right? 20, 21st time at this point. So you then you have an evacuation, and it's not the military that's getting on that plane, right? It's all the contractors that you have there, including the Afghan contractors who are now scared to death because they've yeah. been working with the U.S. government for the last 20 years, and the Taliban isn't going to look very pretty on that. So so you had all of these people going, oh, God, I've been helping the U.S. for 20 years. The Taliban is not... And really, the Taliban did go house to house looking for people they knew were working with the
1: U.S. Right. Yeah, so I had... I had absolutely no heartache whatsoever at the idea of getting out of Afghanistan. I didn't, you know, people are saying, oh, you know, the, this man doesn't want to be the president to lose a war. Hard, there's no point in being there. What I didn't understand, and this could be a symptom of Trump's plan versus Biden's plan versus the politics, mm-hmm. but when you decide, okay, we're going to withdraw, you don't pull chunks of troop from here and chunks of troops from there, you you start a collapsing encirclement to where you want to withdraw from. Mm-hmm. You scoop up the Americans. You say, here, this is it. The bus is here. We're leaving. Stay or go. Tell us now. And then you move to the next r- rivetment. Right. Until, until you're back at, I would have stayed at Bagram, until you're back at wherever you're going to leave from, and all the time this is going on, loadmasters are taking equipment out of the country mm-hmm. and people, and then you withdraw. How did this circus ever occur? How did that occur?
0: You know, it's a tough it's tough geo geographically, I think. I mean, I, I would agree with you, but you know, Afghan is the Afghanistan is geographically, you know, surrounded by other countries so you really can't do anything under the radar, right? So that's a difficult thing to do. Um, you know, our our again our leadership I think needs to think a little bit more pragmatically and and responsibly and you know what you're saying is right, but you know, the the I think I, I I just the the withdrawal had started under the Trump administration. By the time Biden got in, most of the green suitors were gone, right? Mm-hmm. So we were left only with contractors sitting there that were coming in and out, helping Afghans, you know, keep the planes working, keep the whatever working. And
1: why and so did they, why they Biden think Biden was Biden going to jack up it? the machinery? Yeah. I mean, I kind of knew that Biden was going to end it. Why, well, why they, did Why were they? What did they think? How did they get the idea yeah. that? Idea that- I didn't people was going
0: to come in and 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 rank up the Hillary. I, you know, I, I just, I, I really do think that sometimes people get in a kind of bubble of their own and they make their own decisions based on that feeling that, you know, well, I know, I know, but I mean, you, you right up to the end, Ghani was in the White House saying, "Oh, we're best friends, you know. This is going to happen. We're going to move on, you know." So then he goes back to Afghanistan. He's like, "Oh crap! I better get on a plane and get out of here, <laughs> you know." Yeah, yeah. And because he because he was like, I, "I actually Biden is actually doing this." So and and I, I do think at that point we were so far out that Biden was like, "We might as well just get out." you know uh, at that point and yeah yeah you know i i just i think it was it was not a one administration failure and i i don't and i just think it was a several administration failure the thing that happens unfortunately with foreign policy is that the most administrations are exactly the same they really don't change the policy one way or the other some are tougher some are more apt to use a military or a diplomatic solution, but the policy itself really doesn't change. Over
1: it's because the bureaucracy is the same.
0: Yeah, just it yeah. really doesn't. I mean, maybe you know a couple of people. The Secretary of State is different, this or that, but the basis of American policy does not change.
1: Yeah, well, it's that's a characteristic of any leviathan, any any yeah. lumbering elephant. It's going to keep moving, and the general direction it's moving It's very hard to make it change.
0: And as someone who's kind of nonpartisan, it, it drives me crazy sometimes because they're like, "Well, that was because of Bush, or that was because of Clinton, or that was because of Obama, or that was." And I'm like, "No, it's all the same. <laughs> it's all the same yeah. policy. It's a matter of maybe some rhetoric, or you know, a little softer power versus hard power." But the yeah, policy—it's not
1: just in war. Yeah, it's yeah. not just in war. I mean. Uh, it seems politically we get one side or one side light. We don't get two sides. Right. Things tend to generally move in the same direction because once you start, say, a program, a, a government program, mm-hmm. the next politicians come in, they may have railed against it, but they want that mm-hmm. gimme, that vote that comes mm-hmm. with it. So yeah. they'll just tinker around the edges with it.
0: And I think we both know that there are a lot of special interests that come into play around a lot of these issues and decisions. Mm. So, I mean, yeah. that's also, unfortunately, and that's consistent. It's consistent. It doesn't matter if you're a Republican administration or a Democratic mm. one.
1: Yeah, so. yeah. They, these guys are not uh, immune to the temptations. Yeah. None of them are. Anyway, uh, the subject I was going to touch on earlier, um, I was talking about Peter Zahan. And he spent a lot of time talking about china mm-hmm. um I said years ago i mean i would it would take me a long time to find the article and it's even in my sub stack somewhere that the china one child policy was gonna come back and bite them in the ass one day, and it has they are at i think the figure is point seven uh children as 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 uh as replacement, mm-hmm. uh, a population replacement. Um, Zeyhan's interpretation of this situation is that China is going to become a hollowed out giant. Their economy is going to collapse. They won't be able to sustain themselves. And uh, that'll be that. I don't see it that way. <laughs> I mean, I do believe, I do believe their economy is standing on toothpicks they have their 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 leverage to the teeth they have no replacement in terms of population but I don't see Xi going oh okay mm-hmm. i I worry about China lashing out if things become that desperate uh Putin's talked about saving the russian speaking people's Hitler talked about saving the German-speaking peoples, and they both talked to... Well, both definitely were going for land, but Putin is desperate for quality farmland. Ukraine, whatever his real rationale is, was almost inevitable. It's all about, politics,
0: right? it's all about the, the land and the location, location, right? Resources, right. yeah. Right.
1: The oil is in the islands, Mm -hmm. The rubber is in the islands. The things they need to keep going are all around them. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Now, will they go, oh, we'll we'll just try to trade our way out of this difficulty, or will they say, no, we're going the way of Japan's, what they call a sphere of influence, uh, the Eastern sphere of friendship or whatever the Japanese called it before World War II, where they gobbled up huge chunks of Asia. I mean, what do you see in that regard
0: well you know it's it's really hard to tell. I mean, I think China's already been running you know they they they're building up the belt and Road initiative, right? They're going around the world trying to identify where resources are and kind of control them in order to bring them into their country. um I think that you know i mean part of the the population issue in China is you know, it's going to take a long time, right, for them to decrease in population. Regardless, um, I think they're trying to counter that a little bit right now, where they're encouraging people to have more than one child. They're paying couples to have more than one. They child. are,
1: but they're getting yeah. pushback. The right. women are saying, "Wait a minute, make up your mind." You know, right,
0: right. And I if you, you live in the the really urban areas, you are you know, farmland areas, you can you can have as many as you want, and nobody's going to talk about it. So. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's a, it's a it's a difficult thing to say. I think, you know, I, I really wish more people would think about the global nature of the world we're living in right now, and we we have to learn to to figure out how to live together and on limited resources, or we're going to be in in big trouble sooner than later. Right. And I think you know the science shows this. A lot of writing shows this. A lot of research over the years. We you know we we have rising populations in some places and and lowering ones in others. And and then which which create creates stresses right on the globe in different areas. And we're all feeling those stresses regardless of where they are. We can't mm-hmm. get out of. We all live on the same planet, <laughs> so until we start right. figuring that out and why it's important, we figure that out. Um, I, you know, I think we're headed for some hard times, and you know, and Ch- and maybe China has to learn this too the hard way. Mm-hmm. Um there's very. I think it's a lack
1: of vision, really. <laughs> uh, what you're talking about, they, they we seem to deal with the issue. six months, a year, two years, three years after mm-hmm. we should have been, after we should have been attacking an issue aggressively. And that's how you end up right with pre-World War One Europe or or Asia in in a a situation so fluid. Right. That you where do you put your finger now? What what we could have done earlier, where could we put our finger now? Mm-hmm.
0: Well, it worries. It worries me, and I I, I worry about the, this country. Quite honestly, you know, we have a Congress right now that's fighting. You know, it's, they they can't make decisions on anything. They're you know they're fighting about things that you know in my mind should have been solved a long time ago. And and instead of okay, we are having issues with climate. What does that mean? And how do we need to discuss that? You know, we have issues with immigration, what does that mean? And how do we discuss that and manage the problem? We have issues with people respecting us now and really not believing in in our our alliance, our friendship. They have problems with trust. What does that mean? And what do we need to do to manage that to make a stronger country? You know, why why is it that our education system is failing? Um, you know, we have kids that are not in math and science. Why is that? I mean, I I think that we need to start thinking about leadership that can that feel passionate about human beings and how to, you know, kind of think about making a stronger society. You know, often I feel like the fighting is, you know, I mean, God, our adversaries must be having a great time over there.
1: We, I <laughs> I think we look st- so stupid on the world stage. We. We want to strangle each other over silly distractions.
0: Right. Right.
1: Meanwhile Johnny can't read. Right. Johnny can't read. He can't add. Yeah. You know?
0: Or somebody's, you know, kids are hungry. I mean, one in what was it? One in twelve kids are hungry or one. I don't even I and even I'm not sure that's the right statistic because I, I you know, but even if it's it's close to the right statistic, it's shameful. You know, we're the I don't even
1: know how it's possible. What what right well maybe maybe it's part of the education problem we have we throw so much money at the problem of poverty, of hunger, of education. Uh, I think the last figure I heard for d c was like twenty seven thousand dollars per child per year wow. and right. they can't read right um so it, it it's gotten to the point where people are entitled to get the things that they need, mm-hmm. but they don't know how they can't even read the form they don't they don't know where to go to say hey i got a hungry kid you know there's no excuse yeah. for a single child not to eat nowadays right and
0: we we you know we need leaders to go out there and and talk about these kinds of things i mean i you know i worry about banning books and banning you know discussions and banning conversations and you know i these are all things that you know, here's my age again, right? We fought against during the Cold War. Russia was the one that banned everything. They banned Levi's, they banned books, they banned music, they banned, you know, everybody had to have babies. They, you know, this is what it was in during, in Russia. And
1: yeah, the words you and, couldn't and, say and the words you could say, yeah. Right, in
0: Easter well, I would say the USSR as a whole. And um, I mean, I saw a lot of this firsthand. I mean, I was there right after, I went to Eastern Europe right after, the fall of the Berlin Wall. And, you know, and a lot of things really surprised me. The poverty surprised me, the inability to move around surprised me, some of the infrastructure, you know, issues surprised me, all of these things were very surprising to me. You know, soldiers didn't have shoes surprised me, you know, so I was like, we were afraid of that? Wait, what? <laughs> so we right. were spending all this time when we could have been doing really different and good things overall. And keep our money.
1: And we're heading that way, maybe not rapidly, and maybe we'll never actually get there. Yeah. But we've become what we beheld. That that thing that that we abhorred, we we are becoming. We're we're acting like those people. Now, this is a subject near and dear to my heart. I like to make sawdust. It's one of my favorite things in the world. I have been working in a wood shop for over 40 years now. My first project was a dining room table. It was the ugliest thing you ever saw in your life. It was a big piece of plywood with the little legs that you screw in the bottom, a little bit of cheap trim, and what was supposed to be cherry stain. It it turned out to be this ugly orange table. And when you put a jug of milk on it, Everybody had to wait for the table to stop wobbling before they could eat again. It was awful. But, and I've said this to people before, who have who, people all the way way back when who saw that table, if I had never built that table, I never would have built a bedroom set for my son Ken. And I never would have built a four-poster black walnut bed for Phil. And Pat wouldn't have gotten his living room set. These are all things that came out really good that I built later because I stuck with it. But the learning curve was brutal. All my drawings were in my head. Uh, Anything that was on paper looked like cave drawings that only I would understand. So I came across a program that I wish I had seen a long time ago. TED's Woodworking Resources. It includes 16 thousand plans I've seen people who would sell plans for say Adirondack chairs for 10 bucks 20 bucks worth it if you can if you can get a plan for an Adirondack chair for 20 bucks and do it the way the plan says you do it you can make those things and make a lot of money or you can make a lot of gifts you can decorate your lawn so to to pay a few bucks for a set of plans is fine this is 16,000 plans, and I've I got to tell you, I, I would have paid them for the free stuff. It's going to take me forever and a day just to get through the free stuff, because there's things I want to build already in there. Uh, Lynette needs a new chair to sit and read on when she sits outside. Her wicker chair is destroyed. So just going with the freebies is great, and you get the 16,000 plans along with the program. So I would definitely if you're a woodworker and you want to bring the joy back just the just making the sawdust ripping through the tools getting the job done and getting that satisfaction you definitely need to check out Ted's woodworking. I would absolutely highly recommend it. I'll leave a button or a link in the text below the audio or video line. Yeah. But all that yeah, all that ties in perfectly to my last question. Okay, it's yeah. it's it's one question in three hundred and twenty-two parts. Are you ready? I'm ready. <laughs> okay, um, just just from where we stand today, and right. and you can you can divide it up into domestic and international. Tie it all together. How you want to do it? I'm the president of the United States. If the mm-hmm. country could be so lucky, I'm the president of the United States.
0: <laughs> hey, and, I want that job. That can't be your job. It's
1: <laughs> job. I'll, I'll be your campaign manager. I'm ready to go. <laughs> All right,
0: I'm in. I'm in. <laughs>
1: <laughs> okay. Um, looking at uh, our situation in Europe, for example, our relationship with Europe. You're mm-hmm. my national security advisor or my foreign policy advisor. I know zip about foreign policy. What would you tell me that I need to be thinking about going forward to next five years, 10 years regarding Europe, for example?
0: Well, I think the first thing that I would say is really invigorate and reaffirm um, the allied commitment that we've always had there. That's the first thing, Um, you know, and I mean, there there would be options about whether or not, you know, NATO is still the way to go, you know, those things would have to be talked about, but I think at this point, NATO has been reinvigorated, and how are we going to look at NATO in the future and how are we going to lead? What is our mission going to be there? And I think the second part is that the U.S. has always been very adamant about democracy, about human rights, and about people being able to represent and speak for themselves, and I think we have to get back to those foundations, We've kind of gotten off the trajectory, which means we've, not that we, we need a very strong military, don't get me wrong, but we've kind of gotten off the trajectory of the fact that we, you know, we'll go back to what we talked about before, right? That we always stood up against, you know, this idea of this USSR and marginalization of other people. So we really have to kind of do the say-do gap. Yeah. We have to we have to shorten that safety gap. And I think the third thing that we really need to do is build up our diplomatic, um, our diplomatic force, meaning that it is so weak right now, it needs to be reinvigorated, revisioned, and remissioned. And the reason I say that is because it hasn't changed since it's been to, it's been there. Okay, we're not fighting the Cold War anymore. We have to realize we have a definitely vastly different geopolitical um, situation in the world. We are not the only superpower or power and we need people who understand how to engage, discuss and manage problems that are significant challenges and very complex. And we just don't have that right now. Now, our our diplomats are, are very good. They're very educated. But Military always go through new training. They go through the new next fight. They go through wargaming. They go through future planning. Our diplomats do not do that. And I, we really need to reinvigorate and also bring in a lot of diversity in our diplomatic structure to be able to deal with different cultures, different you know ways of life, different views in, in the world today. And I think that that's really where we're lacking
1: and intel yeah our in, our intelligence i mean where how would you rate our intelligence community right now
0: well you know you know the biggest problem with our intelligence is that they sit in a secret room and um they fail to understand populations and people that so they know how many tanks russia has they know how many weapons russia has they know all of those things they know their diplomatic structure Who's the general, all of those kinds of things, but they really don't understand the population. And the population has always been the one factor that where we have lost wars. We won lot, we win lots of battles, but we lose the war because we don't understand the Iraqis. We don't understand the Afghans. We don't understand how to engage these people. They are not us. and that's okay. Yeah. And we have to be the, okay with that, but there's we, a
1: nuance at work there. There's countries that we get along with the governments, but the people hate us or and, we want it or want, vice versa or vice versa right we want to right. we want to take out people talk about taking out Iran's leadership mm-hmm. The Iranians love Americans yeah, they did i I've seen so many films <laughs> where kids would come up to the Americans and talk to them for an hour um.
0: Iranians are natural allies to me. I mean, their culture, they're very well read. Their lit- literacy is 97%. They've been all over the world. They're well traveled. They are well educated. I mean, it's just, Iranians are natural allies. Now, the Iranian regime, that's a different story. But, right. you know, so what you're saying is exactly right on.
1: Yeah. Sadly, I, I think, there are modern people being led by people who are stuck in the 700s.
0: Yeah, and I really think that's been our big disconnect is that we 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 understand, we do understand the regimes usually very well, but we don't understand the populations and the people. And if you don't get that piece right, you are not going to understand the will of, of that population and how you can influence it to do positive <laughs> change or positive movement
1: forward. Okay, with the last part of that question, my wife is British. Oh. And right, right now, England is flailing. Great Britain is. I lived
0: in England for a long time. I love it.
1: <laughs> I we almost moved there at mm-hmm. one point. Almost moved. She she, she wanted to move back. We went on vacation. She cried when mm-hmm. it was time to leave. I mean, mm-hmm. it's a fine country, but my question is, and this this will be this will be what I wrap with, um they are looking for a solid trading partner but they're not dealing from a position of strength right now mm-hmm. um one do we give them a sweet deal or do we maybe become the senior partner in a new commonwealth of nations
0: you know it's very interesting and i i don't i don't I'm not going to claim to know the answer to that question um, because I think I need to do a lot more research on that. But I'll tell you a really quick uh, uh, kind of informational tidbit that I got in this past trip to Brussels. So I'm leaving Brussels and there are two lines, right? One is all these passports and the other one is EU passports. OK, so EU passports, everybody's right their line or the u.s and everybody else that's taken forever so i have a british guy behind me who's going do you mind if i get through because my flight will be taking off and i need to get through and i looked at him and i said but you're and i had to stop myself
1: almost said eu yeah. and
0: i said and he said brexit and I said, "Oh no!" So they had to be in the line with everybody else, and these little issues are now starting to creep in. This, you know, British psyche about, uh oh, I don't have the same, you know, capabilities that are are possibilities that I had yeah. before Brexit. So I think in, in that response, as far as trade goes, is that you know they they kind of need to think about what their strengths are and then yeah. we can talk maybe about how to how to help those leverage those and make make it a stronger country in that respect. Yeah. Okay.
1: Well you, and you heard this here first, I say France is next. <laughs> right right yeah. now they're like EU okay no EU just as good.
0: <laughs> I'm still surprised Italy didn't leave a long time ago. Honestly. I mean
1: Italy every time go yeah. there
0: all the Italians do is complain. So Mm
1: -hmm. yeah (laughs) well listen that was awesome i am so grateful that you made time for us my little tiny podcast which is now going to explode into a massive incredible podcast because (laughs) you announced your presidency your candidate candidacy for president and you're going to be my campaign
0: advisor so i'm really that's it
1: (laughs) that's it I'll, i'll be your speech writer i'll hook you right up well, that's awesome. I'll try, I'll try not to put any too many f bombs in your speeches. <laughs> I I am a 23 year sailor, but so I was you know. gonna say
0: that's a sailor background right there. <laughs> yep.
1: Well, anyway, Patricia or Tricia, what do you prefer?
0: Um, you know, my parents, my family always called me Tricia from a young age because my father is actually a Pat Pasquale and they call him Pat. Uh, so everyone called me trisha so patricia and trisha is fine <laughs> well
1: it was great meeting you if you too the world suddenly starts collapsing around our ears i'll call you immediately please do and you can tell us what to do
0: <laughs> all right. uh, thanks patricia i love it thank you thank you all right bye have a great day
1: you too don't forget to subscribe leave a comment and share the p4b you don't want to miss a thing. Send inquiries to Poe River Productions at gmail.com.